Welcome to another special topic episode of the Olefins Weekly Wrap-Up, a podcast by IHS Market. Today is Thursday, October 29th. I'm Erin Roberts. Our special topic episode today will follow a similar format to the last one. I'll be interviewing two people on a topic relevant to the ethylene and propylene markets. We'll do a deeper dive into specifics as we discuss three questions within the topic. Enjoy! Today, I'm joined by Steve Lewandowski, Vice President of Global Olefins Research, and Carlo Barassa, Executive Director of North America Light Olefins, and we're talking about the global ethylene supply surplus and whether the North American crackers can run full. Welcome back, Carlo. Glad to be back, Erin. And welcome, Steve. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. Happy to be here. Well, as many of you know, Carlo leads our North America Light Olefin Service, but Steve, can you share a bit more about your background and what you do for IHS Market? Well, it's always a tough question. So looking back, it's now about 31 years in the oil refining pet chem space. So I've been a refiner, blended (laughs) gasoline, blended fuel oil, ran operating units, uh, ran steam crackers, ran aromatics units, looked at project work, uh, so seen the gamut in in the space for sure and understand some of the concerns and can sympathize with a lot of our clients on some of the challenge they have, especially in in today's environment. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Steve, what is the current state of the ethylene market and how will that change in the next year or so? And North American ethylene has been quite interesting. So I've been here at IHS market for about seven years and went through a lot of gyrations on where the U.S. balance would actually play out. So I look at it two different ways. First is just purely on capacity. What's installed? What is it designed for? What could it make if everything's going perfect? Uh, and on paper, when we look back at the numbers, um, you know, we have a couple of quarters ahead of us that we probably will have on more capability to supply ethylene than we can have to consume it or move it to the market, even if that's via exports uh, of monomer. So there's a lot of, of ethylene capability there. Now, what I've always said during this startup ramp up phase of the U.S. assets is, you know, capacity doesn't always mean supply. We know in startup ramp up, there's trials and tribulations of of getting assets running, and you may have gaps on the demand side or on the supply side that you have to work through. So really it's it's looking at what physically can the assets do. So that's kind of the second way to assess this. What capacity, even though it's there, what is really available to uh, to produce ethylene? And over the course of, for sure, since COVID started, but even since this, big wave of new cracker capacity came on stream. We've had quite a few startup uh, ramp up issues and that continues. Uh, We have quite a few unplanned outages. Um, You know, they took units down and had extended outages and repairs because there was a lot of surprises when they opened things up and and looked inside those assets. We had turnarounds that were planned at even an extended interval relative to normal turnarounds, but they were even extended beyond that because of COVID and working conditions and the safety of of the maintenance players that they they brought in their plant so that you know created some supply disruptions definitely 
technically in the cracker, switching feed, switching severity, you know, all have some impacts of making a bit less ethylene. So on a physical operating basis, yeah, we've had a bit less supply over the course of, of the last couple of months. Will that continue or will it not? Time is, will tell. But then on the derivatives, it's another story. So even though we're making ethylene, what happens to that ethylene once it's made? I think in this COVID environment, polyethylene's doing rather well uh, because of the applications that it serves. Uh, that demand stayed pretty strong even through the course of COVID. But other derivatives haven't fared so well, especially out of North America. So when we talk about clearing this ethylene that we produce, one of the chains that's the most complicated is the vinyls chain. Because first you make EDC, then you make VCM, then you make PVC. And when we look at our balances, we, we're long EDC and have to export EDC. We're long VCM and have to export VCM. If those export markets can't receive EDC and VCM, uh, we won't consume the ethylene and that creates some issues for the ethylene supply. Two other key derivatives, EO to glycols and ethylene to styrene, uh, both those markets on a global basis are very, very long because of new investments and reduction in demand just because of COVID. So what we thought we were going to build and have a big advantage to clear to the global market hasn't been the case uh, yet. And we've stored a lot of excess glycols and styrene, especially in Asia, that eventually is going to have to be pulled out and probably will pull back uh, demand a little bit. So, you know, on just a supply demand front, capacity wise, it's going to be a tough time for the U.S. ethylene producer uh, if if demand doesn't show up and, and the assets run well and they produce uh, a decent amount of ethylene, which is always their always their hope. So that's kind of where we where we see this uh, balance in the short run. So, Steve, it, it really seems like 2020 was an anomalous year, given all the outages. And, and you know, you're talking about all of the. You know, all the other derivatives, you know, how in such oversupply that they've been in polyethylenes kind of come in and save the day, at least in uh, from a 2020 standpoint. I mean, how does how does polyethylene play out in the future? Because given the oversupply and the other derivatives, doesn't that doesn't that put additional pressure on the polyethylene supply demand balance to kind of come in and save the day? Uh, yeah, I mean, that F polyethylene has been a, a good surprise. And there's a lot of different reasons. I think we we went into the year with low inventory in the base case, uh, so there there really wasn't anywhere to go to to pull stock. And the demand showed up because of hygiene, because of safety. A lot of packaging uh, was accelerated just because of hygiene. You know, people wanted to wrap bananas, people wanted to wrap fruit, individual fruits. I mean, as you look at that whole sector packaging fared uh, rather well. Yeah, there's a lot of excess PE capacity coming around the world uh, that comes with the ethylene. This is something we anticipated even before COVID. So we know there's been a year of demand growth loss, essentially. Uh, normally, we're expecting six, six and a half million tons of ethylene demand growth year on year. Uh, even though GDP was negative this year, we actually had a positive growth of two million tons. So a bad story, but it could have been much worse. Going forward, we're going to see how, how this ultimately plays plays out because there's, there's challenges ahead, which we've kind of anticipated already. It's just another year of ethylene supply that has to be absorbed. Okay, well, this next question, I want Carlo to start. How does the ethane advantage play into this and is it at risk? Well, 
first answer to your question, the ethane advantage is is huge for these uh, ethylene producers. And the answer to the second question is it's not at risk yet. Um, I think when we look at the NGL production over the course of 2020, it hasn't declined by as much as oil production has. And in fact, it's actually stayed, uh, you know, been pretty durable throughout this whole COVID mess. Um, when we look at propane plus type production, um, you know, it's only a couple hundred thousand barrels a day lower than where it was at the all time high. Right. So it's really stayed up there, whereas oil production has you know, declined pretty significantly. Uh, so that's that's one thing. And, you know, there's a lot of ethane uh, capacity, what we call supply on the shelf uh, to be able to to feed these ethane crackers. But I think the challenge that we're starting to see with ethane is higher gas prices. It's not necessarily a positive thing for the ethane markets because when gas prices rise, essentially the gas floor rises and, you know, ethane prices have to get pushed up, you know, with it because there's a there's a bare minimum amount of T and F costs that have to be recovered. And, you know, and the reason why we haven't seen ethane prices rise to a greater extent, and you know, Steve and I were talking about this earlier, is that there's a lot of uh, marginal TNF costs that are being considered. In other words, when you have taker pays on these pipelines and fractionators um, that you know, by and large, most of the producers have committed to, um, essentially, you know, they they flow this stuff for free because you know they're already being charged. And so it just takes a little bit of incremental price over gas to be able to flow the flow the barrels. And, and so, you know, really ethane prices have levitated because of all this increased demand from the crackers. And so when you have a combination of higher gas prices, you know, pushing up the ethane floor, when you have a combination on top of the combination of higher ethane demand pushing up prices, let alone the fact that we're actually going to be exporting more ethane molecules uh, given the new uh, satellite uh, orbit terminal uh, that should be pushing some additional barrels out to China. You know, that, that's not necessarily going to be constructive for the, uh, the ethane advantage, especially in an environment of oversupply. Then, you know, once we consider nap the prices into the whole mix because we have oil prices languishing around, you know, anywhere between 35 to $45 a barrel. It's just kind of been meandering uh, within that range over the last uh, few months. You know, I think, you know, that's where, you know, things get really interesting on the NAPTA side. You know, if you want to talk a little bit about that, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. So NAPTA is definitely a challenge as transportation fuels demand is off. Uh, and still waiting to really get back to pre-COVID levels. There's a disproportionate yield out of refineries. The the margins or the crack spreads of the individual products, whether that's gasoline, jet fuel, or distillate, are all very low. Historically, you would run a barrel of oil. If you made a bunch of diesel and a little bit of naphtha, the diesel would carry the naphtha loss, uh, you know, if it was equal to oil or a bit below oil on a dollar per barrel basis. Now, with all those other cracks much lower, there's less incentive to run incremental oil and deliver incremental naphtha to the market. So we've seen strengthening in the naphtha market. 
Uh, and, you know, going forward, if those ratios of recovery continue to be challenged, especially for kerosene and jet fuel, the question is going to be, how does a refinery run? If it can't make caro, how does it make gasoline if gasoline demands there? You know, I'm a believer. I've been a refiner. I blended gasoline. Maybe you use naphtha, more naphtha, and find some octane and, and blend the gasoline that way and short the naphtha pool. Uh, even a, a bit more. What 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 is interesting about naphtha, and let's come back a bit to ethane, is we know oil production, Carlo, is less in North America. Maybe mm -hmm. gas production will be down a bit. But as you said, there's still ethane there. You know, comment a bit about ethane rejection and why why it seems ethane is still able to physically supply where maybe LPG isn't the case in this dynamic between rejection into the fuel gas or recovering it to uh, alternative uses, namely pet chem. I think that's a key point to probably highlight as well. Yeah, I think so to really unpack what I said earlier about, you know, ethane recovery and, you know, the necessary amount of, of, of margin, if you will, that, uh, that a producer needs to make. So, you know, when a producer takes a commitment on a pipe or on a frack, um, you know, essentially, I'll give you the example out of the DJ Basin, right? So, you know, to, to flow barrels down to Mount Bellevue, it's around 10 to 12 cents uh, a gallon, right? And then to frack it, it's anywhere between five to seven cents, right? So let's just, let's just take the high end, right? And we'll say it's 19 cents a gallon uh, to, um, you know, to TNF, right? to transport and frack uh, the barrel of ethane. So, not only do we need to cover that 19 cents a gallon, right? We also need to make sure we're we're taking into account the gas price locally, right? So, so I think when we when we look at, um, you know, that TNF cost, that 19 cents. Well, you know, if a producer's taking out that commitment, 18, you know, 17 and a half to 18 cents of that is sunk, right? Because they're going to pay it whether they flow the barrels or not. So essentially what a producer would look at is they would look at the incremental, uh, the incremental economics, which would mean that, okay, can I get a penny or a penny and a half over gas value? Well, if I can, then I'm recovering ethane, right? Because I, I want to be able to fulfill my commitments. And so that's one of the reasons why we haven't seen ethane really shoot up in price given this new demand. And, and, and now when we look at why, you know, gas uh, NGLs haven't declined as much as uh, in terms of total production relative to oil. It's because a lot of these incremental economics, one, on the ethane side. The other, the other thing that I, it's a lot more subtle is uh, because when, we're, when you get higher gas prices, you also, you know, motivate, uh, you know, more drillers over in, you know, drier gas plays than also in, you know, the wetter gas plays in the Marcellus, you know, you're going to motivate those guys to produce, especially with, you know, NGL prices hovering above, you know, 50% of WTI. And so, you know, when you take all of those factors into account, there's a significant amount of ethane on the shelf to be able to feed these crackers. It's just a question of how much, you know, what's the price. And, you know, once those commitments get filled, that's when the price really shoots up. Right. And that's when we see, you know, not only are you calling barrels from the DJ, which is a little bit, which is definitely higher cost than calling barrels from West Texas, but you're also going to start calling barrels from, uh, from the Bakken, which, you know, last time I was in the business, that was, 
you know, 27, 29 cents per gallon of TNF cost uh, out there. And so, you know, that if we start getting three, four or five more crackers worth of demand, then you'll start to see, you know, uh, ethane prices really shoot up. I, th- I think the interesting dynamic, Steve, is going to be, you know, these ethane exports and how that'll have an influence. Because when you're when you're taking an extra 400,000 barrels a day of of export demand into account, you know, that that is essentially four or five more crackers worth of demand, right? And so, you know, that that's going to be the dynamic to really keep our eyes on here in the next, you know, three to four years uh, of whether the ethane advantage will persist. I mean, let alone, all, you know, all the oil oil and naphtha dynamics, but that that's going to be the, the you know, the key signpost uh, of, you know, how these ethane exports evolve and what's their ultimate influence on price. Yeah, for sure the U.S. ethane guys are happy oil didn't stay at 10. Yes. As it dropped to in April and hold there for a long time because that that would have hurt them much more than, than they're hurting uh, in reality, even at $40 a barrel oil. Yeah, I get I get really geeky on the whole commercial side of NGLs because I spent so many years in that business. So, you know, apologies to our listeners if you know I kind of bored them to death with all these <laughs> with all these passion. Details. Passion is good. Passion is good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so after all that, the last question is: What can help with all this oversupply? Yeah. So, so for the U.S., really the key on um, you know the first way to assess this is on capacity. Will we have delays in the couple of crackers in the queue uh, to start up? So if if they're delayed and have more struggles, but the derivatives that are coming with some of those projects start up on time or a bit earlier, you know, maybe there's hope that we have the capability of consuming more. Uh, But ultimately, it's going to depend on the the global market, right? It's going to depend on um, our export capacity. Can we export more monomers? Uh, will that new terminal that should have incremental capacity available by the end of this year really play out? And could it be bigger than what we see? So maybe we can clear more ethylene to the global market. And derivatives themselves really going to be key. Will will construction and heavy industry start back up, which you know consume a bit more durable goods, housing, housing starts, et cetera, you know, on the vinyls chain, on the styrene chain, will that help improve uh, on that front? So is the market there to clear what we can make? Because economics are still going to rule. Wherever this ethane advantage may play out, wherever crude goes in the naphtha cash costs and other sources of ethylene around the world. I also watch coal chemistry very closely in China. I mean, if coal to glycol really takes a hit because oil's lower, pollution's higher, uh, you know, maybe they cut back more. Maybe this coal to VCM gets cut back for the same reason. Maybe our our methanol to olefins chemistry gets challenged in economics. As gas goes up, methanol prices in theory go up and makes them less competitive. CTO, coal to olefins, you know, through that whole value chain could have challenges. So there's technologies uh, producing ethylene around the world or ethylene equivalents that could be challenged in a lower oil environment that says steam crackers are the traditional way to make ethylene is in vogue again and that's kind of a plus for the u.s guys still taking into account if the capacity comes you know our hands are a bit tied it's really about capacity delays but then we have to watch turnarounds there's a strong turnaround season we anticipate coming for next year weak margins 
uh, I know people are trying to save uh, on cost and cut budgets, but if the margins are weak, the opportunity cost is low. You might as well do the maintenance uh, when you're in the, the trough end of the margin cycle, get that behind you and be ready to run hopefully when when the market uh, market improves. And, and then we're watching closely one other big dynamic and that's refining and refining feedstock production, especially in Europe. And if we lose volume of naphtha, volume of LPGs that are going to crackers and ethylene production in, in Europe, that just creates a bit of a, a need to satisfy what the growth is in Europe, and that you know is logically should come from the U.S. Some maybe from the Middle East, but um, could help our market a bit a bit more. Again, capacity though ultimately is the key: is will we have delays in projects or will they advance? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, Steve, that our refining group. You know, when you mentioned Europe, I mean they're talking about two million barrels a day of refining capacity. That's gotta that's gotta come off, right? Uh, and you know. The real question is, you know, where is that refining capacity um, and then how integrated it is with with a petrochemical plant? Obviously, you know, petrochemicals can't carry refining margins. Right. I mean, it's there's got to be more to it. But, uh, you know, given that the that that Western Europe is really sandwiched between, you know, two ethane advantaged uh, regions, the U.S. and the Middle East, you know, how do you see that evolving? I mean, you know. It, it it takes a lot. You've worked for a you know a French company, so you know it. Pro- it takes a lot for those uh, uh, for those people to shut down um, uh, shut down uh, capacity. So you know, give yeah, us your take on that. It's it's not obvious. You know, a lot of the weaker assets for petcam and refining have shut down and had shut down. You know, two thousand eight nine crisis. So the weaker links in the chain have already kind of disappeared. You know, so the next tranche of capacity reductions becomes even harder. The problem for refining is they were anticipating and expecting still demand growth for transportation fuels. Yeah, we lost a lot more uh, demand growth for for fuels than we did for petrochemicals, and that's really a challenge for them because there is a lot of new refining capacity coming around the world, new best available technology built to scale, built to where the demand is, good deals on oil. No, they're going to run. So it's going to be painful for quite a few players uh, to, to make that call. And it's not going to happen overnight. So there'll be reductions in rates and, you know, maybe we'll get an indication from that. But definitely repurposing sites in France for sure. Uh, it, it's a challenge. I mean, yeah, they're going to biofuels. One of the sites, that, you know, from the company I came from created a, a training institution and training hub at one of the locations so they're creative they're trying to find ways uh, to manage but uh, there's there's gonna be some big adjustments in in that space Um, and who knows maybe it's gonna accelerate versus what we're anticipating because the demand recovery is still a big question mark more work from home uh, less travel by plane you know how is that ultimately going to play out and with refining assets coming, so something's got to give. There's some assets shutting in the U.S. There's some assets shutting in Asia. There's smaller, you know, tea, tea kettle or teapot refineries in China that, you know, have been marked to say, look, we're going to build big refineries. You're going to go away. And, you know, those things are in the mix, but still a, a lot of excess capacity is on the ground and, and something's going to have to give. 
Well, I think it's about time to wrap things up. Thank you, Steve, for joining us. Yes, thank you, Steve. This was awesome. Thanks for the invite. It's a pleasure. If you enjoyed today's episode, you might also be interested in two upcoming IHS Market online conferences, the first of which is the 8th Annual Asia Chemical Conference. Pre-recorded sessions are available online starting today, and the live conference will take place November 5th through 6th. After that, we have the 38th Annual World Methanol Conference, which will take place November 17th through 19th, with pre-recorded presentations available to delegates starting November 11th. Links to register for these conferences can be found in the episode notes on all podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play, and give us a like or leave a review if you enjoy it. And if you have any follow-up questions about this topic or want us to cover something else for our next special topic episode, you can send an email to me at erin.roberts at ihsmarket.com. Until next time.